Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dow. We took last week off, a little spring break, so you could catch up on your episodes and I could catch my breath amid truly insane number of projects I've got going. I have some announcements about one project in particular. And before I introduce this week's guest, Stella O'Malley, I will tell you about them. They have to do with, uh, wait for it, the Unspeakeasy, my community for free-thinking women. It is a huge time around here for us. The first big news, the online community has launched. So this is a private social media platform. I guess that's the best way to describe it designed for women who, uh, let's just say, are tired of some of the groupthink on places like Facebook. Uh, I guess the best way to describe it is it's like a little mini Facebook, except everything stays in the community. We have different discussion forums for different areas like politics, arts and culture, climate, science, medicine, gender, feminism, Everything you can think of. We're always adding new sections. We also have uh, discussion forums that have nothing to do with the culture wars, uh, knitting. Uh, so there's recipes. We've been posting a lot of pet photos. And I have to say, it's pretty great. There are some amazingly smart women in there. I think everybody's really smart and everybody is very respectful. By no means does everyone agree, not at all, actually. But the conversations have been truly substantive. It's kind of like, you know, occasionally you see something on social media where like, oh, this is a really good conversation. I'm enjoying this thread. I like the people on this comment thread. That's like every thread we have going on the Unspeakeasy in the online community. I saw a conversation about abortion recently that had several dozen people in on it with several dozen different opinions. And um, it was pretty amazing to see. So. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a woman and you like this podcast, I think that you're going to like the Unspeakeasy online community. Right now, you can join for just $99 a year. That comes out to a mere $8.25 a month. But that introductory price will go up soon. So I strongly suggest you get in on the action now. I would love to see you in there. And I'm in there all the time posting, by the way. You're not going to get rid of me. So theunspeakeasy.com is where you go to find out about it and to join. The second thing is that we have announced new Unspeakeasy retreats for this year. I'm going to tell you about three of them right now. The next one coming up is in May in Minneapolis. The overnight version is May 8th through 11th, but we have done something new and have offered a daytime only option. That means you can come just for the days, May 9th and 10th. You get all of the same programming, the guest speakers, everything the overnight people get, except you don't stay overnight. And the venue is about 20 minutes outside of downtown Minneapolis. So it works well for commuters. So if you want to get in on that one, that's going to be great. We're doing one in June in Austin, Texas, June 24th, 25th. That's a weekend daytime only retreat. And then in October, we're going to do a three-night, four-day retreat in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania at a gorgeous resort. That's October 23rd through the 26th. That's going to be the real luxury offering of the year. Really spectacular kind of spa resort kind of environment. And um, I am trying to set up an additional daytime retreat 
somewhere on the East Coast next fall, um, but I'm still working on that. So in the meantime, if you're interested in either of those three, go to theunspeakeasy.com and uh, write into us and we'll send you the information. Okay. My guest is Stella O'Malley. She is a psychotherapist in Ireland who works with adolescents and their families. Now, some of you may know Stella through her podcast, Gender a Wider Lens, which she co-hosts with Sasha Ayad, who was one of the very first guests on The Unspeakable. That podcast, in my opinion, does an absolutely exquisite job of covering the new gender movement and how it's affecting kids and their families. We're going to cover some of that in this conversation. But the main reason for Stella's visit is her new book, which barely mentions gender at all. It's called What Your Teen Is Trying to Tell You. And uh, she talks about a lot of things in it, including just the way that parents can be under a lot of pressure to send their kids to therapy and even begin medication at like just the first sign of trouble. And while that can be appropriate, sometimes she talks about how an over-reliance on professionals can kind of cause everyone to pathologize what in many cases are simply normal, if uncomfortable, feelings. Stella also talks about what it's been like to be at the forefront of conversations about gender dysphoria, and she stays overtime for paying subscribers to talk about her own gender dysphoria as a kid. To hear that part, you know what to do. Become a paying subscriber at megandaum.substack.com. And meanwhile, here is my conversation with Stella O'Malley. Stella O'Malley, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you for having me. You are a psychotherapist in Ireland. You work with teenagers and with families. Some of my listeners may know of you through your podcast, Gender, A Wider Lens, which you do with Sasha Ayad, who's been a guest on this podcast. I definitely want to talk with you about gender and the issues you cover there. But the occasion for your visit is your new book, which I don't think mentions gender once, a, t- a tiny bit, a couple of pages, but I, you know, within the realms of teenage distress. Yes, as if it could be uh, existing uh, at, at any time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's timeless in that sense. So yeah. your book is What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You. This is a book for parents. Even though you're a therapist, one of the big takeaways is that maybe kids are going to therapy a little too often. Mm. Are, are you trying to put yourself out of business? <laughs> it's a it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing that I'm saying, and I, I'm aware that I'm opening myself to criticism. Of course, I am. I always do. But like, I, I've been a therapist now, you know, for for a long time, and I've always worked with teenagers, and I love working with teenagers. More and more as the years roll by, I think to myself, and I work in this way that I could work better with the parent than with a teenager. Sometimes, yeah, working with the teenager is very, very powerful and very, very effective. But sometimes, and maybe more often than we think, it's more helpful for the, if, if there's distress in the family, that the parent goes and the parent kind of works with the therapist to analyze what has gone wrong, what needs to be done, what sort of maybe strategies or boundaries need to be put down, what confidence needs to be helped with the parent while sending the teenager to therapy sometimes they've had a very traumatic experience and yeah maybe maybe therapy is exactly what they need and that could be very appropriate often the teenager comes to me and basically says 
yeah, you know, I hate my mother and apparently you're the ther- therapist and you're going to fix me. And I'm like, well, it's it's not going to work like that. And um, it's going to take some time. And, you know, we do great work. We do do great work. But I often feel that the parent has inadvertently written themselves out of the story. The parent has inadvertently created a scenario where the teenager respects what I say, my, I, the therapist, much more than the parent. We've kind of brought in a third adult into the equation and a kind of a triangulation happens where the parent is the persecutor. The teenager feels like the victim and the therapist is considered the savior. And none of this is healthy. None of this is appropriate. Uh The therapist does their best to mitigate against this. But I think it's the culture of sending all these teenagers to therapy. It's making them, it's pathologizing ordinary distress. And it's making the the teenager think some adult somewhere, the right adult, when we meet them, is going to fix me. And that's a terrible message to send. Tell us what your client base is like. I know you're in Ireland. Are you in like um, a major city? What kinds of issues are the kids coming in with? What are the parents saying to you? Sort of what what does the picture look like? I'm in rural Ireland. I see a lot of teenagers over Zoom, but I see a few in real life. I see an awful lot of anxiety, an awful lot of loneliness and tension and rigid thinking and shame and, you know, kind of, lonely lives in bedrooms and thinking everybody else is living this great life. So that's a very big issue. I obviously see a certain number of people who who are, you know, dealing with gender issues, but honestly, they have the very same issues. They, They kind of almost invariably have anxiety, loneliness, difficulties with relationships, difficulties with school. You know, the teenage issues are very easily noted and too much time online is almost universal at this stage how long have you been practicing um i was just trying to think that there a few minutes ago i'd say about 2006 or so i would have started practicing 2005 let's look back in and around then long time yeah so quite a while yeah how have you seen things change obviously the internet was around in 2006 but when did you start to see this phenomenon of people just, how did you just put it, hiding in their rooms? Or yeah. it was so poignant. Or just yeah. they're stuck in their rooms, like as yeah. if stuck in their own, inside their own brains. Very much so. Lonely, lonely lives in bedrooms. You know, I always think yes. about Janicean song. Do you remember way back in the 60s at 17? <laughs> oh, about I, the, um, I was at home. What was it? The... The homecoming uh, queen. I was at yeah, the homecoming queen. Yeah, she was yes. at the home and she had bad skin and she was inventing lovers on the phone. And it, mm-hmm. uh, that was the line that I always think of inventing lovers on the phone, as if, you know, she was pretending to have boyfriends on the phone. These kids, they're in their bedrooms and it's just so lonely. They're inventing these lives online. And the lives online are amazing, <laughs> but their their own lives are pretty, pretty lonely, pretty grim. You know, very loving families. That's that's not really the issue. It's just like school. Back in the day, maybe when I was in school or certainly in decades previously, teachers were the problem. Teachers were the bullies. School was the issue. Nowadays, it's not. The, the teachers and the family and the parents aren't usually the issue. Nowadays, it's much more likely to be the peers. But back in the day, the peers actually formed a kind of a loyal group around themselves 
to fight back against the bully teachers or whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of changed in recent decades. And what kind of role does medication play into this? Do they tend to already have been prescribed medication when they when the kids come to you? Yeah, very often the teenagers I see will have already been prescribed, depending on their age. If they're about 17 or so, generally medication will have arrived. I think that's an unfortunate and and kind of frightening, well, yeah, frightening development that I didn't see back in 2008 or 2012. I just didn't see it. You didn't see teenagers in Ireland on medication. You just didn't. They, they wouldn't have been put on it. The doctors were very cautious and just wouldn't have done it. Nowadays, it's, it's very likely that they'll be on it. And when you're on medication, it's it's kind of continuously a choice then whether to, it's hard to get, get off it. And it, it often numbs, for example, any human's libido. And so their ability to understand their, their sexual awakening is pretty stunted. And it can dis, kind of disconnect a person from their emotions. And so that can be difficult to work through psychotherapeutically. It's just, I think the, the turn to medication is done and the result is really complicated. And I'm, I'm very concerned about it. And I'm not saying don't ever go on medication. Yeah, you you write, these days, our instinct is often to, quote, get the professionals in. Yeah. But the professionals don't always know how to help your teen. And you're talking to the parents. Nobody cares as much as you do. And that applies to doctors and like medical clinicians as well. I mean, I feel like I don't have any hard numbers in front of me, but I feel like I've known so many parents who's like very small children, they, they'll get diagnosed with ADD or ADHD or whatever it is. And they'll be on medication almost from like a very, very young age, especially the boys, I guess, although I think the girls are catching up. Do you get the sense that the parents are just sort of so accustomed to trusting professionals in every realm of their lives that this is just yet another example of bringing somebody in who ostensibly knows more than you do? Yeah, because there's nothing more kind of comforting than getting the professionals in when you feel out of your depth. So it's certainly a very understandable reflex. But it also we forget that like, what is what are you going to the doctor for? Basically, the doctor is going to prescribe. And so it, ta- it takes an act of um, energy to not prescribe when somebody comes in, if you follow me, with, with some sort of mental distress. That's the kind of the elephant in the room. Once you go into any doctor with some sort of distress, medication is hovering just there as, as an option. So by getting the professionals in, I think parents, I think it's a culture we're up against. I don't think it's anything to do with the parents' faults. I think society has this culture of get the professionals in, combined with a very second, big second factor, which is this terror about mental illness. And so the fear of distress and the fear of mental illness in your child can be so, so kind of overwhelming the parents are very, very quick to say, well, you know, they did, they'll tell me some story and they'll say, and they did this, you know, they tried to get out of the car when we were at a red light. And of course, I needed to bring them to the doctor as a result. And I'm like, God, don't underestimate how manic and 
irrational teenagers be that they can they can do really really pretty mad things i stick in the book and i I was really glad to do it a kind of a story from lisa damour i think you might know her she wrote some great books around teenage years and stuff like that and she she talks about you know how this um intern was working in a psychiatrist's office and they were looking at the brain scans of psychotic people and uh, the intern was told to separate the psychotic people from the non-psychotic people so that uh, the, you know, the neuroscientist could look at the detail. And <laughs> the intern was told, but you have to watch for their date of birth, because if they're teenagers, you'll think by the brain scan that they're psychotic, but they're not. They're just teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was incredible. <laughs> yeah. So we, we underestimate how mad they can be. And they're perfectly normal. So this fear of mental illness. Let's talk more about that. Like, when did you start seeing that? And and yeah. how much of it is a function of just sort of parents being more enmeshed with their kids? Because it seems like, you know, this is such the cliche, but kids were sort of, they, you know, everyone was kind of on their own in our generation, running around with our friends on the streets. And then we'd come home at the end of the day. And I don't think our parents were particularly interested in our psyches unless we were causing real destruction. So when did you start to see this shift? Um, in the last 10 years, I'd say I saw a shift. Mm. What, what, it, it's crept up on us. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, parents are more enmeshed. They're more engaged as well. And they're more, they're certainly very, very close. That's one point. But on the other side of it, we've got, I suppose, a culture that in schools, uh, behind the toilet door, posters in the doctor's office, everywhere you go, there's talk about suicide and self-harm. And I don't think we as a mental health industry, like I say, I'm uncomfortable saying it, but I think it has to be said if I've got integrity, that I don't think we as a mental, whether it's people like me writing books or people like me who are psychotherapists and I'm fully, fully ready to accept blame that could be directed towards me. There's something about the way we're talking about mental illness that has really weakened our ability to cope with distress. We, we haven't improved it. We used to, it used to be taboo. And so suicide was taboo. And then, you know, there's a phrase too far east is west. Now it's so not taboo, it's become normalized as a reflexive way for a teenager to talk about suicide as a way to demonstrate how distressed they are. So it's gone so far away from taboo. And sadly, it is not where teenagers can do a really crazy action like, well, anybody can, but specifically teenagers with their, with their unformed half brain are much more likely to do risky, impulsive behavior. They can, you know, do a suicidal act and it's only because it's been kind of in the water, it's it's been spoken about so often that they consider it. So I think we've made a real mess of speaking about mental health. And one of the upshots is ch- parents are terrified that their kid is going to fall into mental illness. Can you explain the difference between suicidal ideation and being suicidal? Oh, yeah, there's a huge difference in that. So being suicidal is a person who is thinking of suicide and maybe has a plan and it's quite a, a very serious place to be. And people can have that feeling and they think about it and it's like an escape 
in their mind from their pain. And it's a terribly, terribly, terrible mind bind where they keep on thinking, I could get out of this pain. There is a way out. I could get out. So it's a really frightening place to be. And it is something that has to be taken incredibly seriously. And there's a kind of a protocol. It's not kind of. There is a protocol that people like me would follow around somebody being suicidal. And it's a very, very serious protocol where you might end up, you know, ringing psychiatric hospitals or or ringing kind of emergency service. So it's, it's a really serious protocol. And so that is there for a very good reason, because people can go into really terrible places as a, you know, they can, anybody can. And we have to be very careful around that because these are the people we might be more likely to meet because we work in mental health. And then suicide ideation is a different thing. And it's not being figured out that it's a different thing. It's a, it's a kind of a daydreaming. It's thinking about suicide. It's not as articulate. It's not as specific. It's in the back of your mind. It's just around Again, it serves as a function to kind of offer an escape route to your mental pain. Well, I don't need to be here. So both of them offer that kind of brain escape. But it's very insidious suicidal ideation because it can be there all the time and you can glamorize, you know, funerals and you can really kind of get very into it. And it's different because it's not as intense. It's not as specific. It's not as likely to happen. And it's a different realm. So it's like, you know, thinking of something versus planning to do something is two very different things. You know what I mean? We can think about something for for quite some time and not plan to do it. Lot of things. We can think about something for nine years and not still not plan to do it. Yes. Yeah. So that is the difference between ideation and actually suicidality, where you're where you're specific and you're making plans. And so the the seriousness, it can lead to a suicidal mindset it can lead to planning so we can't not take it seriously we have to take it seriously the problem it seems to me is that because you're reading about suicide on the posters on the wall you're reading about it in workshops it's been mentioned here there and everywhere comes up after a program because somebody mentioned the word suicide because it's everywhere the likelihood of people having suicidal ideation is much much higher it's a an insidious kind of thought where it's kind of, I've got an escape. I don't need to be here. So it's a horrible, beguiling idea that you can use as a, a, a way to relieve your mental pressure, but it's a terribly dangerous thought pattern. So that is my theory that like we've just spread it like confetti everywhere. And as a result, people are falling into this ideation because it's just a, an option now. Yeah. And it always feels like there's so much conflation of the two. Like we'll talk about, oh, this young person, suddenly there's huge cause for concern because now there's suicidal ideation. And as you just described, I always thought of suicidal ideation as just like thinking about what that might be like. I mean, I have that several times a day. It doesn't mean that I'm going to kill myself. It's like, okay, well, this is this is a concept. This is something out in the world and it passed through my brain in various sorts of forms. So it's just like, it seems to be one of these examples of a kind of, I know this is a loaded word, but hysteria around what is sometimes like a fairly common human experience, a negative one maybe, but yeah, like I just feel like 
you know, there's another example, actually, let me ask you about this. So, so cutting. Okay. So this is something that we see more and more. There's, you know, self-harm to the body, self-mutilation, however you want to describe it. Um, It can be very, very serious. But I've also noticed that in some teenagers, it's just like a thing that they do. It's like this little, they're just like, do it one time or a little bit, or it's like a way to kind of compete with others, not compete, but you know what I mean? Like, I guess, okay, this is just, I'm asking a very simple question. Like how seriously should a parent take something like cutting if it just seems to be sort of like something that somebody is doing to kind of be part of the group? Right. And I can hear your trepidation speaking about it because it feels like both of us are on dangerous ground here because we could be so quickly accused of diminishing people's very serious experience. And that's exactly why it's so terrifying for everybody, because we're falling all over the place trying to figure out, like, say, on the one hand, this could be really, really serious. And honestly, suicidal ideation can lead to suicidality. You know, it's, it's a very definite link. So we can't dismiss it. We have to take it seriously, but we have to be very accurate in what's actually happening rather than just saying, oh, my God, suicide word has been mentioned nine, you know, press 911 immediately. So with self-harm or cutting, you're dead right. You're, you, you are absolutely correct. There is a spectrum. <laughs> and, you know, one person's kind of self-harm can be, you know, they can use paper clips or something. And, you you know, it can talk about it a lot. And the actual event could be very, very, very minor, where you say it's barely caused any physical actual hurt. Like, you know, it's, you know, one person that could be picking their, their, their fingernails. Um, for one person, that could be barely sore at all. And frankly, just, uh, you know, a, a minor event. Somebody else, they could be picking their fingernails and it could be really awful. It could be a constant you know, habit. They could have got their fingernails right down into their finger. It could be really sore. It could be a really bad habit. So when I say bad is indestructive, hurtful habit. So it is a huge spectrum. And whoever the teenager you're talking to, you have to figure that out. You have to figure out what exactly is going down. And sometimes somebody comes in to me, I, I can think of somebody and, you know, they might come in and they might say, God, you know, I said, you know, self-harming and They've all gone mad about self-harm. They're going on and on and on about self-harm and in school and everywhere. And honestly, that's not my big issue. My issue is, and they'll t- talk about something else and they'll say they're all losing the head here about self-harm or the opposite. The kid could be kind of going on and on and on about self-harm. And when you get down to the actual accuracy of what's actually happening, you're like, this is a real stretch to call this self-harm. You can call it self-harm, but it's it's. The bigger issue is the fact that they're talking about it all the time. They're glamorizing it. They're glamorizing a darker side of their life. Psychologically, there's a lot more distressing and disturbing issues going around about the way they're talking about self-harm than the actual self-harm event. And parents aren't quite used to that because they've just heard self-harm. Oh, my God, disaster. Go, 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 everybody. And the truth is, You've got to get into the kind of weeds now that self-harm has become a completely normalized way of dealing with any distress. We've got to accept as humans, as parents, that it's likely 
our children will, will experiment with it. They'll have heard about it so often among their peers. And one of the very closely linked associated kind of factors of self-harming is knowing somebody else who self-harms. And they're all talking about it all the time. So let's say that like if the kid comes home and there's a scratch or there's a cut or something, what kind of conversation could a parent have with the child? Is there a starting point? Is it sort of like, okay, is this something that all your friends are doing? Is this like, what, what's the best way to kind of frame the conversation? Yeah. And I, I go into that in the book. The idea with the book is to kind of empower parents to be able to have these conversations rather than charging off to a therapist, because that's disempowering for everybody, for the teenager and for the parent. Not always. Sometimes you have to bring in the therapist, but a lot of the times the parents can handle it. The parents can read up a little bit about the issue and can probably will have more commitment and love and engagement than any professional will have. And so what the parent could do in this context is, okay, so the child has said, I'm self-harming. And the parent is going, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Where I would go is, first of all, kind of in a way you zip it. First of all, your questions should be very open-ended questions that gets the teenager talking. Now I know, I'll come back to that in a sec, because I know some teenagers just will not be openable up so what you would be trying to do is clarifying what is happening. And I go into a kind of a, a five or six stages in the book that how to steps start off with clarification, figure out what is actually going on, figure out the actual details. Now, you have to suffer a lot of rolled eyes and kind of slam doors at this at the clarification stage of this process, because what you're doing is trying to ask questions like, so tell me, am I right in thinking that you you were hurting your you know, yourself with paper clips um, at school at lunchtime last Thursday. Um, is, was there any other self-harm that was happening? And they could go, oh, for God's sake. Or they could say, well, yeah, you know what I mean? So you have to suffer that whole kind of that. But it's when you're clarifying, and I would do this as a therapist, you're trying to find out what actually happened. Because sometimes, because we forget about the immaturity of a teenager, sometimes they'll say, well, yeah, there was that. But then there was also the time when I burnt myself. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That they don't realize <laughs> that one is so much more frightening than the other. So you've got to clarify what is actually happening with open-ended questions that are actively listening there's a lovely acronym which is called wait why am i talking where if you're if you're the adult talking you're probably trying to motivate them and inspire them they're probably just trying to get out of the room you're much better off if you could just ask questions and looking at them and trying to figure out with them so that you've got a good idea of what's going on. Not only are you figuring out the physicality of actually what happened and did it ever happen before? And is there a pattern to it? And, you know, various things around that. You'd also know, do you know anybody else? When did you first start thinking of it? What made you think of it? And they might be very cagey around this because very often when they first heard about it, it was online and they don't want their uh, tech to be restricted. So you've got to be shrewd and say, listen, I'm not going to restrict your tech and all that, but I've got a feeling you saw this online. Was this on YouTube or was it on TikTok or something? And I strongly kind of advise parents to intercept, to be part of the, their children's online life, to know their passwords, to be able to look at their TikToks, to be able to, you know what I mean? And if that runaway train has ran away, to retrieve it, saying you're not getting your tech back until you give me your passwords because you're you're getting into really, really adult spheres online and it's frightening for everybody. So 
I would go at it in that way. And then I kind of go into the steps after you've clarified what's going on. Then you're trying to kind of, you know, empathize with them, make sure that you're willing to get into the ditches with them, that you don't pretend that it's a small little problem. Then after that, you might show some solidarity saying, listen, it's going to take us a long time. It might take us years and I'm going to make loads of missteps and loads of mistakes. But over time, because I'm willing to shoulder to shoulder with you until you feel better, let's just give me some patience that let's work on this together and try and pull you out of this because I can see you're in a dark place and then lastly in this step process which I go into in the book I'd say talk about offer some depth give them some they often are looking for meaning in life they're looking for a sense of purpose previous decades of of generations of, of teenagers they had religion nowadays people don't have religion and they're they're scrambling around kind of cluelessly without anything to hold on to and they're very, very ripe for any sort of online kind of concepts that give them a feeling that there's a solution to life mm. because of that kind of there's no it's a post-religion era. We're the first era without well, I don't know, since the cavemen, it's been religion's been with us for many, many, many centuries. And so what millennia. And so now these teenagers, very few of them are grown up. Well, Certainly in, in my realm, very few of them have religion. And it, it, it was taken from them very fast in the last couple of decades. Uh, oh, so, okay. I'm wondering if I'm listening to this with American ears, because like my impression would be that certainly for the last several decades, if they're in sort of, you know, modern yeah. times, sort of post-World War II decades, like religion is pretty negative for teenagers. It's something that they're rebelling against. Now, maybe since we all define ourselves in opposition to things, maybe that was the whole point. But well, yeah, uh, there's a few ways to go. Yeah, you you finish and then I'll jump in. And no, I mean, I'm wondering, like, are they so like in Ireland, was it more recently that just almost everybody was more engaged with church? Yeah. And that's what's very interesting when we t when I talk like with in my podcast, Sasha it being in America and me being in Ireland. It's like in many ways, mentally and socially, we're we're about twenty years behind America, which is very interesting for people in Ireland because we can see how it's <laughs> panned <laughs> out. You see what's coming. Oh God, better not yeah. to know. Maybe for example, you know, prescribing medication for ADHD and ADD. That started really in America in the 90s, as far as I can see, big numbers, while it's only started in Ireland, I'd say, in the last 10 years. So something like that, we've got, we can look at, in Ireland, we can look at the data from America and see what the long-term impacts, which is very handy. But yeah, we did have a much more, so I would have been brought up where you had to go to mass every Sunday, you know what I mean? And everybody around me did. And every, for example, every Imagine every class, we had a prayer before every class and things like that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't taken very seriously, but it was there in the culture everywhere, just everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, you, I remember, you know, you do even all sorts of contexts. We'll say a prayer for the most random, like before a football match type thing. It was some very funny kind of context of religion being sprinkled. And yeah, it was something bad to rebel against, but we are the first couple of generations without religion for millennia 
and were not coping very well. You could argue that very anxious people in previous generations would have turned to religion. They would have been the, mm. the religious people. It was a very, very good settler for an anxious person because it's the idea is, yes, this is the valley of tears. You will get your reward in the next life. Don't you worry, just do good and you'll get your reward in the next life. Very comforting, very comforting. And when you look at OCD and you look at so many of them have these kind of repetitive kind of ceremonial kind of uh, physical scenarios that are very like somebody who's blessing themselves or very like somebody who's doing rosary beads. If you follow me, they're, they're going along the rosary. Bead. There's an awful lot of kind of genuflections that are very kind of replicating the religious. And you just think, wow, all those religious symbolism and physical kind of gestures that people were making for thousands of years, they've gone. And an awful lot of OCD ceremonial tapping and patting and hitting things mm -hmm. is incredibly similar. It's just there's a there's a huge event has happened, which is religion has been taken away for especially from nervous people, anxious people. Nothing has been put in its place. And my theory is, look at the rates of anxiety. They have shot through the roof. They needed their religion. That It settled them. Wow, I would not have thought of it that way because I think a lot of people think about religion in terms of how bad it was for a lot yeah. of people's mental health, like you're going to hell or there was yeah. so much condemnation of of lifestyles that were not like you and, know, within yeah, a very tiny bandwidth. You, you, know? you might be right. You might be right. Yeah, there was an awful lot of negativity, but there was an awful lot of, I suppose my mother's generation and I look at my own mother and they have such comfort with their religion. Religion is a huge comfort to a huge, my mother to a huge amount of people I know. Just it was it's a comfort that she, you know, she has had a hard life, but she feels she will get her just rewards and she will see, you know, her husband in the afterlife. And it's a comfort. So it's, it's interesting. You just see it as a bad. I don't wonder where you from. No, I don't just see it as a bad thing. But I mean, I can hear people. I can imagine people listening to this and saying like, oh, well, you know, maybe if you were like, you know, living a very particular kind of life. But, you know, a lot of people were being told they were going to go to hell or that there was only one very specific way of being. I mean, we in the US, we have religious fundamentalism and it's not That's just, what I was just about beyond to say. the Catholic Church. It's like, you know, pretty extreme. It kind feels of, it feels. Yeah, it feels to me that the religious in America is so hysterical, <laughs> while the religious in Ireland is a comfort. If you oh, that's me. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so let's say when my 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 somebody my my mother knew was trying to have a baby, and my mother was very happily going down doing the nine novenas and going to mass every Friday for nine weeks. It was she had all these systems and solutions around prayers. And then when somebody was diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know, she wrote them a beautiful card, and it, it, it's very very it's a comfort. It's a huge comfort to her. Her yeah. and all of her generation, that, 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 her mates, like. <laughs> well, so a lot of people compare this kind of social justice emphasis and kind of obsession, yeah, obsession, obsession with mental and psychological disorders and, uh, you know, obsession with who's being harmed and who's being bullied and, you know, who's thinking about suicide. A, a lot of people associate that or have, have compared it to a new kind of religion. And I'm curious if you can talk about like how educators and therapists and other kinds of 
mental health clinicians have been affected by this kind of outlook? Is this something that they just sort of started teaching in social work school and in, mm. and in ed schools at a certain point? Like, yeah, how did all this obsession with, you know, putting suicide warnings all over every, you know, poster and bathroom stall in schools get started? I don't know. And I'd love to trace that back. And I think I will now you've said it. Um, I don't know how it happened and why it happened. But I do know like a greater emphasis on mental health kind of arrived. And there was a kind of an acknowledgement in general in society of opening up the darker you know, corners of life and looking at paedophilia, for example, and looking at rape and looking at the things and suicide, things that we'd always swept under the carpet and starting to acknowledge their existence. Along with that, the mental health industry became an industry and they started giving talks and designing posters and, you know, giving programs and things like that. And I think it hasn't been very well executed, certainly not in the last couple of decades. And along with that has been a kind of, I would say, uh, the new religion is social justice, identity politics. That's just, they would have been, you know, cleaning the church 30 years ago. You, you know what I mean? These are just people who who need to have this kind of belief system that makes them feel that they are the righteous and they are. The- oh, you mean they would have been. OK, by cleaning the church, we're talking about the church members. Yeah, they would have been. Okay, the church we're not members. talking about people. Uh, yes, this, this is the American would be like, what are you talking about? The janitors? <laughs> no, 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 not the janitors. Basically, the likes of my mother putting the flowers out for the priest saying, I hope you enjoy that, Father. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there's a whole there's a whole army of of people who can just be kind of members of the congregation who are very happily sorry about all these cultural no gaps no I love us. it I love oh, it do you? It, makes, oh, it makes me want to move to Ireland <laughs> so yeah because I don't I don't know when you went to school for being a therapist or what that involved oh yeah but, sorry you asked me that yeah yeah it, I went to school for being a therapist around the early 2000s I started practicing you know it was a much earlier time you were allowed to be a counselor when you only had a diploma and stuff like that so I was practicing kind of immediately so around that you know 2004 2005 six, I started uh studying yeah, I was studying all along there right and um, no, there was no talk of social justice, identity politics. It just wasn't there. I was just before I would imagine it came in, if you follow me, because it just it didn't come in. Certainly not in Ireland. It didn't come in. And I, I later went on to study, you know, later on and it didn't come in particularly there. But it seems to be rampant in counselling at the moment. But I don't think that's a direct reflection of counselling. I think that's a direct reflection of society. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's come in the door through counselling. I think counselling is reflecting what society is telling them to reflect. And oh, so, okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, as far as I can gather from talking to therapists in America, it just sounds so out of control in America that it does feel that there's been some sort of infiltration of of a of a mindset in the colleges, whether you're whether you're learning English or psychotherapy. You're going to get this extraordinary social justice woke angle that I, I don't think is healthy at all. I think I think woke uh, thinking is, is actually very mentally uh, distressing. So I don't think it's counseling per se. I think it's colleges in America is a hotbed for really dysfunctional way of thinking. Yes, definitely. As we've discussed on this podcast many times, but it also <laughs> seems like ed schools and social work 
yeah. programs. It's particularly rife there. I've- well, that's the humanities. You, you know, it's the it's the heartland. <laughs> if somebody wants to be a therapist in the U.S. anyway, they're going to have to get like a master's degree in social work, for instance. So they're going to go to that kind of program. And those are particularly captured. And every single thing is looked at through the lens of, well, unfair hierarchies are affecting people in this way and that way. And any kind of clinical relationship, there has to be an, an emphasis on systemic inequality and how this person's mental health is being affected by all kinds of factors beyond their control, which just seems to me like pretty counterproductive because you want to have control over your feelings as, and experience as much as possible. But yeah, like something like bullying, for instance, though. Okay, so this is something that I think that is a norm that has been changed for the good. So I think you and I, I, I don't, I think you, we may be sort of roughly the same age. So like when I was in high school, middle school, junior high, as we called it, like there were always kids getting beat up in the oh schoolyard after school. It was just what happened. And everybody, especially boys, you know, you most likely went through some kind of terrifying, humiliating experience. And you know, it was decided that so-and-so was going to get the shit kicked out of him at three o'clock. And it was terrible. And the teachers looked the other way and the parents kind of weren't paying attention. And this was a rite of passage. And that is something that awareness around really changed. And I think that's for the good. But on the other hand, we have this sort of lack of resilience. It's almost gone too far. Yeah, I think we've done bullying quite well. I I re- released a book a few years ago called Bullyproof Kids and I you know, I discussed that at length just how bad the bullying was in previous generations. It was awful. It was really rampant and it was awful and it was grim. I think there is terrible bullying these days. It's much more likely to be insidious and online. Yeah. And it's unbelievably less likely to be physical. If you follow mm-hmm. me, the likelihood yeah. of it being physical is re- is really reduced, but that doesn't mean it's not relentless. And there's an awful lot of anonymous kind of anonymous bullying online and pylons. And I remember, you know, I discussed it in my book and, you know, one girl, all the boys in the, sc- in the year in school created a, a WhatsApp group or, you know, some sort of online group with one girl. And then that girl was on the group and they told her what they wanted to do with her sexually and what they'd do with her and her mother. They put up memes <sighs> and gifts of her and her mother and her and her sister and her and her alone. And she couldn't get out of it. She didn't know what to do. She, she was just frozen in this situation. Wow. Yeah. So what can be done online couldn't be underestimated, if you follow me. Oh, my gosh. So and also so girls because the online kind of bullying that seems to be much more affecting girls. I'm actually surprised that the boys would kind of be organized enough to yeah <laughs> to set up that kind of <laughs> ring of abuse. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't underestimate the glee that yeah. certain techie boys have. Right, right, right. In creating a certain scene and uh, what was interesting I suppose in this scenario the frozen paralysis that we go into an animal like I'm not going to look I'm not going to I'm not going to leave the group you know it took her a couple of months to leave the famous 
group, if you follow me, when she could have left at any time. It's it's hard to explain what is triggered in us when we get piled on. It's just, it's all so, ah, it's so hard. It's just so hard. It's such a difficult subject. But yes, it was always there. And we are dealing with it a lot more. And there's a huge amount of social acknowledgement that it's a terrible thing. We're quick to call it out. And I think we've really improved. And we haven't really done the same with suicidality. You could argue, you could put suicide, you could do a brilliant, somebody could do a brilliant piece of research and say, what did we do with bullying? What did we do with suicide? How have we made it so bad? The big difference was suicide was taboo. Bullying was not so taboo. I don't know. They didn't come from the same places, but we seem to have really improved society's understanding and way of tackling bullying. And I don't think we have done the equivalent with suicide. And I think we have made contagions out of things like self-harm inadvertently, you know? Yes. Okay. So speaking of contagions, we're going to uh, move on to uh, a topic that is a favorite of uh, my listeners here, which is the new gender movement. You have a podcast called Gender A Wider Lens, where you talk all about this. It's an extraordinary podcast. You and Sasha, you are so incredibly careful and thoughtful and intellectually rigorous with your discussions and your analysis. You talk about this from all kinds of different angles. Talk about when you as a therapist started encountering gender dysphoria in in young people. Well, for me, I had an unusual entry into this extraordinary world that I have never had. (laughs) I have never come across this a world like this you know what I mean when I think about it before let's say I entered into this in 2017 and before that I was ticking along I'd written a few books my bullion book came out actually in 2017 and you know life was engaging but it wasn't half as strange as it is now now it's a very strange world so in 2017 what happened was I wrote an article I'd noticed that gender was being talked about in what I felt was a very inappropriate way Over the years, I'd noticed it more and more. And I used to kind of make noises along the lines of to my husband or my friends. God, I must write an article about that because I often wrote for the newspapers. I still do. And I kind of said, I have something to add to that debate. And they're missing a lot of points. Anyway, I finally got it together to write it in 2017. And um, well, it was inspired by Cyril Doty, who was a a Canadian uh, non-binary parent who had a child. And she fought the Canadian courts when the child was about nine months we're from the child's birth, really, to have the right to uh, certify this child as you, which stands for unknown or unassigned, even though the child was born healthy and there was no reason. It was clearly either a male or female child. Wow, you meaning like the letters U O U, unknown or unassigned. You, you, you as in UVW, yeah, you. And you stands for either unknown or unassigned. She wanted wow. you on it rather than MRF for male or female. Right. And I was wow. reading it in a cafe across the road from where I am now. And I just put the paper down and said, that's enough. That's enough. I need to enter into this and I need to have my voice. So I wrote to the, you know, the Sunday papers in Ireland and I, I said, I've got this article. And I talked about my own experiences with gender. And uh, so I hadn't at this point, I didn't have gender, you know, clients as such at all. And I just talked about how I'd had a very intense experience as a kid. And you can come out of it. Because I ended up staying as a as a woman and I came around to the fact that I had to accept my body as it was. And I'm very, very pleased I did because the best thing about me is the fact that I'm a mother and I love being a mother. 
And from that, I did a film. And from the film, which was out in 2018, I became inundated by people seeking counselling, parents, teenagers, everybody, detransitioners, transitioners, people who are lost in transition. And I, I was very wary right at the beginning, 2018, 2019, 2020. I was very wary of really delving into it. I'd, I'd see some parents just as a therapist. I'd work with them. I'd see a couple of people if they had other issues and gender. But I was very slow to get involved because I was like, this is a very unusual world. And I've I've come into it in it in this strange way. But then when when lockdown happened, I started running parent meetings, just very much in the realm of like Al-Anon. So AA is for alcoholics and Al-Anon is for the families who love the alcoholic. So the way we ran the GDSN, it's Gender Dysphoria Support Network, if anybody wants to look it up. And they're brilliant. They're still ongoing. They're amazing. Really, really helpful for parents. The idea was as obsessed as your child is with medical transition, you're obsessed with their obsession. And it probably drive you into sickness you probably feel sick as a result are certainly obsessed so I did those parent meetings and they were so shocking this was during COVID and there was such a shocking 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 run of events during those years and as a result I ended up uh, founding Genspect and completely immersing myself in the world of gender so that's for my very long answer Okay, so when you're going to stay for some bonus content and you're going to talk more about your own story with gender as a young person, but okay, when you say shocking, shocking things happening during lockdown around gender, what do you mean by that? Well, what happened was the first meeting I did for parents was around about March 2020. Lockdown had just happened, if I'm right. I've got my years right. And I, I did that meeting. I came downstairs and I was in tears. And I was talking to my husband. It was one of the most moving moments of my life. I just couldn't believe the miscarriage of justice that had been done to these parents. They were just telling stories about a child who had anorexia, who's hospitalized, who, you know, who had been on a drip. And somewhere along the way, a therapist had suggested that maybe it was gender issues. The child came out as a boy and suddenly that they were, you know, you know, checking them in for for a mastectomy. And it's like, sorry, what? Okay, wait a second. Let's okay, because I've heard stories like this too, but I think people sort of don't believe them. Let, yeah. Let's break this down a little bit. So yeah. in this scenario, see, I was them. I, may I say, I was your listeners. I was like, it's all very heightened and it's over the top, and some freak instance might happen. But really, then I did the parent meeting. So I started off with one meeting a week in March 2020. By April, I was doing two meetings. By halfway through April, I was doing three meetings, four meetings, five meetings a week. It took over, and these were like each meeting was about fifty or 20 parents and the similarity of the stories and the the extraordinary other diagnosis these children had like eating disorders ADHD autism ODD everything they had everything these kids were really 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 distressed kids if you hear it all in a meeting and then another meeting and then another meeting when you hear it all together if you follow me rather than just one parent telling one story when you hear 15 parents telling incredibly horrible stories about being treated really badly by the mental health. It's only when you're in the room, I, I, I would always invite you to kind of be part of one of those and they would welcome you in because they're very keen to get their stories out. You would realize, oh my God, something phenomenally 
bad has happened to family life with these children. They, they really, when, when we write the history of gender and we're going to give a chapter to the transitioners, we're going to give a chapter to the young vulnerable kids, there will be a chapter to the parents and how they were treated and, and kept out of the, so that they are the stories I heard of. But anyway, what did you ask me? Well, so yeah, I mean, I think listeners are, they're, they're no stranger to, to this topic. Yeah. So, but something like how somebody would end up in a hospital okay. on a feeding tube and, and uh, a physician is saying, you've got to transition them or they might die. How do we get to that point? Take us like a step-by-step step because there is a, a connection s- between eating disorder and dis- gender distress dysphoria. or dysphoria. Yeah. It's just extraordinary how often parents would recount how their child was in a clinic for whatever. Maybe it was mental health. Maybe it was self-harming. Maybe it was an eating disorder. And that they were in for anorexia. And then uh, they, they would have a therapist and they're in recovery, having had, maybe they were having been on a tube, having been in a very distressful place. And somewhere, somebody, and it was, unbelievable how often it was the therapist who suggested to the very vulnerable and volatile teenager maybe it's because of your gender and it's like sorry what they had an eating disorder and the therapist suggested it and then I've heard just to add to that point because it was COVID lockdown I heard a run of stories of parents who had no idea who thought the therapist was absolutely kind of a brilliant therapist until they frankly heard the sessions because the sessions were suddenly been taking place in the room next door. And they heard the therapist talk about how they were really a boy. They heard it with their own ears, these parents. It's only when you hear the stories together that you realize the therapists lost their way. They kind of they got very excited about the new kid in town, which was gender. They they thought they had a solution they got really. They, we saw it in the, you know, the the, the re- recovered memory syndrome. Yeah. We saw, we've seen it before. The therapists get overexcited. They have this godlike complex, and they go on some workshop. And what do you know? Next week they find that one of their kids has a gender problem because they've suggested it. It's the vulnerable, gullible, kind of uh, naive teenagers who are falling for this. And you bring a gullible, naive teenager to uh, a therapist with a God complex and you've got gender within weeks. So are they, okay, this is what I want to understand. How is it that so many therapists have mm. been, <laughs> have been taken in by this? Because it's beyond having a God complex. It's incredible. They're incredibly impressionable. These, these clinicians, like this is the thing, like, is this somehow being taught in, in social work schools when you go to get certified and educated as a mental health clinician, are they saying as part of the curriculum, this is something that we know now that we didn't know in the past. And you must, as a responsible care provider, take this possibility into consideration that there might be a a gender component. Like, is this just being, is this just part of the protocol now? It seems to be. I haven't been a person who, a participant of that, but it seems to be. But I was like, I went to a workshop just for example, a few weeks ago, just for continuous professional development. And I was interested to see what it was like. And it was about sex and intimacy. And the majority of the day was given over to kink and talking about how people might want to be, you know, gagged or choked or hurt. 
and how consent was, you know, the cornerstone of all this. And as you can imagine, I was quite disruptive because I kept on saying, well, I'm not sure consent is the only thing. If anybody's any psychological understanding, if somebody wants to be hurt and humiliated to a dangerous extent, psychologically, one could argue, this isn't doesn't need to be just put into kink and consent. This could be put into this is self-harm and we need to discuss this. And uh, it didn't go down well, by the way. Yeah, what a prude. He was a typical Irish church lady. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't go down well at all. But like, I know that other therapists in the room started to come behind me, if you follow me, because there's just a genuine common sense psychology of if somebody wants to be hurt all the time in their sex life, psychologically, something else is going on. And to pretend to just be really blasé and say, well, if they consent, that's everything. It's 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 asinine. This idea that consent covers everything. People will consent to lots of things. People will consent to crazy stuff. It's, it's irrelevant sometimes. It's like we have a lot more to think about than just consent. I, I don't think that's where what you asked me. <laughs> what did you ask Well, me? I'm just trying to understand like how this kind of how the mentality changed within the care provider networks, because you do hear this again and again, like, are these, are these young, are are the, are the people who are going into Uh the field predisposed to this kind of, I I'm really careful with the word ideology because it sounds like conspiracy theorist adjacent, but it it is an ideology. Okay. Well, it's certainly a, a theory that has been written as a fact. Yeah. I mean, we see this too in public education in the States, like a, the, a lot of the younger cohort who are becoming teachers now, very social justice oriented, very much, you know, there's a lot of LGBT, you know, representation among younger teachers. It's just, this is the sort of people who are going into these professions, these caregiving yeah. professions. I, I do think there's a certain type of person who becomes a therapist and they're generally, you know, their disposition would be very strong and the be kind and they'd be very kind of, there'd be a very much a certain type, which would be very much emotions to the forefront and a kind of a, often, frankly, what looks to me like a fear of conflict, but certainly rowing in with anybody, rowing in and empathizing. And, you know, there is such a concept as toxic empathy. There is such a concept as toxic positivity. There's also such a concept, by the way, as cruel optimism, where you're nodding along and somebody hasn't a hope in hell in getting what they set out to achieve. But you're just being, you know, toxic, positive, toxically positive, And you're you've got cruel optimism and you're just going, yeah, 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 it'll work out. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love, I've not heard that concept. Cruel optimism. I love that. Oh, it's well, I, I always think of it if I was to write a book, which I'd be banned from doing <laughs> from my children. But if I was to write a book about Jazz Jennings, that's what I would call call it cruel optimism. You know what I mean? Like the kid was led to believe that, you know, that she could be this, you know, beautiful woman. And it's, it's, it's gone so badly for her. And you know that feeling when somebody has led you along that it's going to be great and you suddenly get this awful feeling that it's much harder than you've been led to believe. It's a horrible feeling. But yeah, a certain type of person goes into these colleges. A certain type of person wants to be a therapist and they're similar to teachers. Right, and it's changed. It's not the old Freudian no. psychoanalyst. God, like no. somewhere along the way... Well, mental uh, health 
changed. I, I know. Yeah, I've, I have tracked that. Like psychoanalysts, they're not they're not so touchy feely. It's the person centered like Carl Rogers kind of really kind of took over the world with counseling. And it was much less a therapeutic process and it was much more just given empathy. You know, he said, all we need to do is be there. All we need to do is have positive regard for the person, congruence and, you know, be able to just kind of trust that the client is right. The client is the expert of themselves. That was the kind of 70s. And it, it stayed with the counseling and psychotherapy profession where we were taught very strongly the client is the expert. We need to kind of effectively nod along. And people who are criticizing that type of therapy would call it nodding dog therapy. It's just you're kind of nodding along. You're, you're trusting that the person knows themselves best, which I'm sure they do you know, the majority of the time if they don't have serious mental illness. But um, it's a very, very pleasant place to be. Critics would say you could go to that therapy for nine years and actually do nothing. You could give out about your husband for nine years and do nothing. So it can be dangerous because you can pretend that you think you're going to therapy, you think you're doing a good process, but actually nothing has changed. Nothing is different. And I think that's really insidious and it's crept into therapy so people now they don't talk about therapy as much and they talk about therapeutic support which is a different thing because it's like the Samaritans I'm just giving you support I'm being paid to give you therapeutic support which is not a therapeutic process the process will ask hard questions maybe give you kind of some challenging scenarios maybe even give you kind of ideas that you should try out while a support is just a supportive presence you know the difference between a friend who's just being supportive And so who's willing to get into the trenches with you and say, really, really, Megan, are you sure about that? I'm not. You know what I mean? Yeah, depends on the kind of mood you're in, which friend you're going to call. And so it's very pleasant to go to person-centered therapy that just nods along. But within that person-centered realm came the affirmative notion for gender. And it's just you nod along no matter what age they are. They know themselves better. We are just effectively witnesses. We are just giving them supportive presence. Not a, not a therapeutic process, a supportive presence. It's very pleasant, very pleasant thing to do, but very pleasant thing for a therapist to offer. And I would imagine a lot of the more uh, rigorous-minded people would just leave the profession just or become a CBT therapist or just move away just thinking, I've got to be a coach. I can't be dealing with nodding along while somebody talks about leaving their husband for 14 years and comes to me every Wednesday at three o'clock and still hasn't done it. Do you know what I mean? So, there, yeah, it's the therapy had issues. It was wide open when the, the affirmative approach arrived. It was wide open to, be, to, to go that direction. Oh, that's fascinating. And we're going to talk more about this in the bonus, but just kind of circling back to what what your book is about. So oh, yeah. like, for a parent, <laughs> okay, so we know that, you know, therapy has become compromised for a lot of the reasons that you just described. If you are a parent and you're in a complete tizzy about what your teenager is going through, whether it's a gender issue or something else, are you saying that therapy isn't necessarily the first stop? Like what would be the first sort of step for a parent with their child? Like what kinds of questions should they start asking, knowing that like if they did send them to a therapist, it might just be this person who nods along, which the kid is going to like, right? 
Maybe the kid wants to go to therapy. They probably are begging for it. Well, they very often, the children very often want to go to therapy because it gives them the stamp, official stamp that they're in official distress. It's not just something small. So it makes them feel very kind of, you know, it gives them a sense of self-importance. And I don't say that in a derogatory way, but it does feel like momentous. Um, it's not necessarily the best thing for them. I, do, I think the first step a parent should do, if your child is really distressed today and it arrives, step one would be to say very little and ask some clarifying questions and then read up about it. And you're very much the watcher and the listener for the next couple of weeks. You're trying to figure out what is happening here and you're reading up about things. You're reading up about it, maybe in my book or maybe go on YouTube or maybe podcast, whatever, but you're reading up about the issue. Might be loneliness, might be tech, might be sex, whatever it is, but you, you're figuring out the issue and you're reading up about it so that you can equip yourself to help your kid then you go in and you say listen I'm gonna I'm gonna help you and these are the ways I'm I'm proposing and the kid might be all about therapy and you could say yeah I'm not gonna go for the therapy yet because I think that would divide and conquer us I don't think that's a good idea I'm gonna kind of take charge with you we're gonna work at it and if there's more talk of therapy imagine a few months down the road and you haven't got much progress then the parent should go to therapy and the parent should equip themselves with what are the extra things that they haven't thought of that maybe a therapist could think of that could help them better address the problem. Imagine it still continues. Then I would talk about the teenager going to therapy. So I'm really far down the road before Mm -hmm. the kids go to therapy. And should the parent go to a therapist specifically for this issue? What if the parent already has his or her own therapist and they're dealing with their own issues? Is this like a whole separate kind of... No, 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 no. Just okay. Sh- yeah. need a therapist yeah. for all every different. No, nah, there's. Your, a, I think life. that's okay. all. We've, we're overdoing it, aren't we? Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, there's there's a lot here. I'm also. I feel like I need to have you back sometime just to talk about the the effects of these medications. I have to say that it had never occurred to me that being on a lot of these antidepressants would kill your libido and so if you are going through puberty that would have a profound effect on just how on your whole self-concept totally it's a very unacknowledged issue wow yeah okay massive wow well stella thank you for talking with me congratulations on the book what your teen is trying to tell you really important stuff. How do we find you? I know that my listeners can find you on gender, a wider lens, but if they want to contact you, what's the best way? I'm easily found. If you Google Stella O'Malley, you'll find me. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. YouTube. I started a YouTube channel that is very undersubscribed. Yes. And I do little videos on YouTube, just little kind of one minute videos about different issues. I do that on Instagram. Yeah. You do your, hey guys. <laughs> Not quite, but I, I'm I feel like that's different. the, uh, right. Hey guys. Is <laughs> the, uh, it's like the call to, it's a cry for help of the creator economy. <laughs> it's run yeah. away, run away quick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to stay in that uh, talk for our, our paying subscribers about uh, your own gender dysphoria as a, as a young person. Great. And uh, we'll get into a few other things as well. But Stella, thank you so much for, for talking with me. Thank you. That was my conversation with Stella O'Malley. She is a psychotherapist in Ireland Her new book is called What Your Teen is Trying to Tell You, 
surviving, thriving, and reconnecting through the teenage years. She's also the co-host with Sasha Ayad of Gender, A Wider Lens podcast. What else? You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. There's a lot of podcasts out there to listen to. So uh, don't think I don't appreciate the time you take to listen to this one. If you want to hear the rest of my conversation uh, with Stella, where she talks about her own gender dysphoria when she was a kid, and also she has some things to say about Ireland and her identity as an Irish person and uh, how that factors into like intersectional thinking, uh, you can subscribe, become a paying subscriber at megandaum.substack.com. Again, the Unspeak Easy is up and running. The online community is amazing. If you would like to join it, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com and read about it and sign up through that website. And that will take you to the community, which is a separate entity. Again, the Unspeakeasy is separate from this Substack. I know you have a lot of things to subscribe to out there. I appreciate that. Trying to keep the costs down. But unfortunately, that's just the way the world is now. So if uh, you are interested in the Unspeakeasy retreats, uh, which are part of the Unspeakeasy, but also a separate thing, we have ones coming up in Minneapolis, Austin, and the Poconos in Pennsylvania in the fall, theunspeakeasy.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>